1: Right, so welcome back to the Equipping Union Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And with me uh, today, I have Neil. Neil, welcome to the show, brother. Hi, Dave. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's good to have you. Can you tell us about your life, marriage, ministry, and any ministry projects that you're working on or writing projects? Sure.
2: Uh, so I am trained as a theoretical chemist. I uh, got a PhD at UC Berkeley in 20, ooh, 2005, actually. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, and I <clears throat> did Yale postdocs and a postdoc at uh, Duke University. My wife was doing a residency program in medicine. and But I left my job in 2014 to homeschool our four kids. Um, that's been really fun. My wife is very successful. She is an MD, PhD, and now an MBA as well. She works as an ER doctor at UNC. Uh, I have an apologetics book releasing on June 21st, which we're talking about today uh, do other things. I write for my blog. I do a lot of book reviews like, like you do, I guess, um, I'm teaching apologetic camp for 111 year olds, 11 plus year olds the week my book releases actually. Um, and then I just, I'm working on other things too. I I write a lot about critical race theory. I've been for years with my friend, Dr. Pat Sawyer. We're hopefully going to write a book on that soon. And that's kind of what I've been up to
1: nice nice Well, definitely look forward to that i know that that's kind of like your jam is but mm-hmm. if there is a jam for critical race theory like you know that is like your thing you know you're you're pretty deep into the work on that very much so well then can you tell about us about this new book why believe a reasoned approach
2: to christianity the introduction why you will be received sure you know i became a christian in graduate school my first year a few months after i got there actually but it's been a long process so it's through a variety of things providentially including knowing my future wife christina uh, but one of the ways I I became a Christian was that when I was uh, spiritual, but not religious uh, back in in uh, as an undergraduate. I think freshman year, the crew or crusade back then was handing out books at the book table at my dining hall, handing out free books. they were handing out two books by C.S. Lewis. It was the Mere Christianity, the Screwtape Letters and the Bible. And, you know, I was. I like books. I was not Christian, but I was like, Oh, free books. Are you kidding me? There's no, don't have to sign up for anything. Don't have to get an email list. Like, no, no you can just have these. So I grabbed the, the two CS Lewis books and just ignored the Bible and thought, this is great. <laughs> You'll never see me again. They didn't, they never saw me again, but uh, I tell this story in the book actually, but I, I read the letters probably th- two dozen times before becoming a Christian. And that's so why I, I just thought it was incredible. so insightful. And so that was a big part of me becoming a Christian is realizing that there are good, uh, not only are there good arguments for Christianity being true, more importantly, it was very existentially relevant. It answered questions that I had It knew things about how uh, my internal life that I was like, how didn't C.S. Lewis know that's how I grapple with sin or that I struggle with these things. Uh, that was very important. Um, and then so, and then he became a Christian I went to Yale as a postdoc and uh, I got involved with some, a friend who was a, a crew staff member and he had a book table at their dining hall handing out books. And so I, I was like, yeah, I'll help you. And I bought that was around the time that Tim Keller's Reason for God came out. Mm. And so I loved that book. I still love that book. And I bought a whole box of these books and just gave them away and so i they got expensive (laughs) this is so as after a while i can't keep buying these books i i wrote i think i wrote to the publishers like can i get these cheaper and i i've been thinking you know like a few dollars a copy because i can't keep pouring money into this uh but through that i thought you know i'm gonna write my own book that'll be super cheap Uh, you know so I, i started around that time i began thinking i'll write my own book on apologetics and um and of course, I'm we're, we're selling it through Crossway. We're not handing out it for free. But all my my desire has been just to get these ideas into the hands of people who haven't heard them before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wh- so, what's special about it? I think there are maybe three things. Um, one is that it is intellectual. I, there are a lot of books that I enjoy. I I really liked Lee Stribble's Case for Christ, but uh, it's it comes across as very too accessible. So I, you know, as an academic environment working at these elite institutions, I would feel uncomfortable putting that into the hands of a person, you know, as a professor at an Ivy League school, not because it's it's wrong per se, but because it just comes across as a very easy to read sort of simple book. So I wanted something that had a little bit of intellectual health that not only could college students read, but that they could hand to their professors and not feel uncomfortable. That was number one. Number two, but I wanted it to be accessible. I didn't want it to be dry and you know, just nothing but footnotes and impenetrable jargon. I wanted to have analogies and illustrations that would be not, not pictures, but just examples that help people understand these ideas. And third, I wanted it to be very uh, gospel-centered So not merely theistic, like, oh, some kind of God exists, you know, this creator, we don't know much about him. I wanted it to be about Christianity. So not just does a God exist, but does the God of the Bible exist? And then finally, I wanted to be reason-driven, so logical, systematic, and actually some early reviewers have, have said they can tell I'm a scientist, because it comes across as very organized, systematic, and rational. So I I pitch it sometimes in just a little bit as reason for god for stem majors that is for science technology engineering and mathematics people not because it's all about science but because it's it uh, strikes people i think as a very orderly reasoned logical and so forth hey
1: brother uh praise god uh i i'm smiling because i used to be involved as a you know one of the leaders in 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 seattle for campus crusade and was early on uh at a high school, a, a, on the regional leadership team in the Pacific Northwest as a student. And so I'm just like, Hey, that's, that's cool, man. Like praise God for, you know, you never know, like, Hey, here's this book. And you're just at a book table and you're like, Oh man, he's never going to read it, you know? And I probably had that thought so many times. So it's super cool to hear that. And man, like what you're talking about, about being intellectual. I mean, we need, we need people like like yourself that are that are extremely well educated, um, and highly educated at you know prestigious universities uh, to mm-hmm. to be sharing the truth. So man, I, I love it, brother. Um, I'm very I'm I'm pleased to see, to see how God's using you. So praise the Lord! Great.
2: Yeah. Well, brother. I was how? People, don't, oh, go ahead. I was going to no, say no, go I ahead. tell people I tell people you don't underestimate what that book might do, but God how God will use those small things. Uh, one of the passages one of the books i used to give out copies of the bible at, in berkeley and the front cover had verse i think isaiah 55 somewhere it says um that the you know the word from my mouth will not return to me void but i i that was great inscription because i thought i'm handing these bibles out to people and they don't they probably just throw them in the trash who knows but I was like you know what god says the word from his mouth will not return void and so i'm not there to just to do something i'm there to uh, trust that god will do something through my meager efforts
1: Mm -hmm. good very good testimony well how can reading the gospels clear away any misunderstandings about jesus
2: and help us understand who he is and what he came to do in his mission for his people right one of the things i say at the end of the second chapter i think which is about the trilemma the lord liar lunatic argument and who is jesus is everybody should be reading the gospel it doesn't matter if you're a christian already Whether you're not a Christian, whether you're hostile to Christianity, you ought to read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus that are in the Bible. And I think, but why for Christians? And I think it's because all of us have this preferred picture of Jesus, uh, whether or not we're Christians. We have this way we like to think about him. But the B- the Gospels present us with the actual Jesus as he actually was, and it forces us to reexamine our preconceptions about him. So, you know, the all and again, I'm not I'm not saying that all of us have a false picture. I'm just saying that all of us have sort of inclinations that we have to always bring back in line with the actual Jesus of Scripture and with largely broadly in terms of the Bible, the God of Scripture. So, one common Understanding of Jesus, I think, in today's culture is sort of the hippie Jesus who walks around in sandals and has really long way flowing hair and just wants us to all like love one another, man. And, you know, yeah, Jesus does want us to love one another, man. But he also was not exactly mellow. I mean, Jesus was intense. He was passionate. He talked about plucking out your eye and cutting off your hand to avoid sin. He said things like that. And so he's not just like this feel good guru. And then. Be another sort of a more Christianized version of the hippie Jesus is this winsman gracious Jesus, who's only those things. And he definitely was winsman gracious. I mean, little kids would come to him and not be frightened. And, and, and you know, prostitutes and broken people, sinners would come and and he would welcome them. So he is gracious. But at other times he preaches fire and brimstone. He warns us about hell and God's judgment and and you know, don't be cast into the fires of hell. And so we have these pictures of Jesus in our, in our minds that we, that must be challenged by the actual Jesus of the Bible. And, and, and frankly, we shouldn't be terrified because the real Jesus is perfect and idols are necessarily not flawed flawed and fake. And so we shouldn't be frightened of encountering the real Jesus. Uh, And then, you know, his mission in the clearest uh, statement of his mission is in Luke's gospel, he says, he came to, to seek and to save the lost. And he talks about how his death on the cross, the last supper will be for the remission of sins. And we know we can, that's true that Jesus said that himself, but it's not a purely individual affair either, right? So, you know, we are forgiven individually. We're reconciled individually, but we're reconciled into a corporate body. We're in, reconciled into God's church, uh, uh, to the fellowship of other believers. And so we don't have to separate those two aspects of Jesus' mission. He came to seek and save the lost, and to save them and bring them into the body of the church to constitute a new people of God. Um, So, yeah, I I just think as evangelicals, we can tend to divorce the two aspects of, of salvation. And I think they're, they're together uh, that we're, we're saved as a community uh, Mm -hmm. to be a community.
1: Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. And, and, and what that does is it clears away any misunderstanding reading the gospels and like what you're saying, it clears away our misunderstandings of Christ. Um, maybe we like you said, we have a huggy buggy, huggy huggy buddy Jesus, you know, he's just all about hugging me and loving me. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, Jesus, guys love, you know, first John four. Uh but he's also holy and he he came under the sentence of death to pay for our sins, um, and and all of those things and to rise and so, yeah, reading the Gospels, absolutely essential.
2: Which one do you recommend for people, John or I just wanted to read it. I say in the book, read, read the, read, read. As long as you read one, you're reading the right one, <laughs> right? And I, I go back and like, I don't think it's right. It's like, like, which is your favorite kid? It's like, I have no favorite child. I, I love them all. I love them differently. Um and I, sometimes I find that one really speaks to me more, but the point is just to read them. I think actually Peter Williams uh, said the best Bible translation is the one you read. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there Obviously there are probably bad translations out there, but the big thing is just to read one. And and if you read one, I think you do see that, that all four gospels, uh, including John, give you the same, a picture of the same person, mm-hmm. um, with just different perspectives on, on his, on what he did, who he was and who he did and embassies, on what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, okay. just read them.
1: Well said. Yep, very good.
2: How does how does the resurrection of Christ reveal the love,
1: compassion, tenderness, holiness, mercy, and justice of God?
2: One of the things I try to do in the bo- in the book is to not approach it as just an apologist, but to bring in our theological understandings as evangelicals. And so, with the resurrection, for example, you know, books will often talk about the historical evidence for the resurrection, and I, I definitely do that. I have a whole chapter on. Uh, The historical evidence that Jesus physically rose from the dead on the third day. But we can't forget that it's not merely an extraordinary, unusual, bizarre event that just happened. Okay, it did happen. But what was the meaning and the significance of the resurrection? And so in the book, I talk about how central the resurrection is to a Christian understanding of of everything. Really, it's it's the core of our salvation because Christianity is not about how we can be a good person and we can do good things and make God love us. It's how we could not do anything to rescue ourselves that Mm -hmm. God had to come in the person of his son, Jesus, to taste death for us, to die in our place. Then in the resurrection to rise victorious in our place now that he lives in our place and he intercedes for all of that is part of the meaning of this physical event in time and space and so if you if you see the cross and the resurrection and you know, the ascension too as part of the central story of the Bible, then you can see all of God's attributes. You see his holiness on the cross. God hates sin. He, he hates it. It deserves punishment. And he's just he's not going to just blink away, blink and turn a blind eye to sin or wave it away. And you know, people sometimes say, oh, if God really you know loved us, really merciful, he could just ignore sin. And I say, well, wait a minute, the Bible presents God as a judge from Genesis to Revelation. God is a judge. God is a, a, a just judge who will bring judgment. And then I have to ask you, well, what kind of judge ignores his own law? He, he, he upholds righteousness and what's good and, 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 and true and righteous. So what kind of God, what kind of judge, human judge, ignores the law, just ignores, pass it. Up. You know, if, a, if a murderer brought to trial, a serial murderer with dozens of murders on his record, and the judge just just shrugs and lets him go, there'd be outrage, there'd be recollections, there'd be op-eds, there'd be absolute anger that he could just wink at this murderer. And, and if that's how we treat a human judge, how should we then think of the ultimate judge who's above all human beings who ourselves are just flawed and sinful? So again, you, you have to Realize that the cross then shows God's holiness, his justice, but then in the resurrection, but also his mercy, because that was what we deserved. The fact that Jesus was on the cross and not us shows God's mercy, his willingness to suffer in our place, his love that that he would through from all eternity plan to rescue people that had no claim upon his mercy. So I think Tim Keller puts it really well. Um, We try to classify or religions classify God as either Holy, primarily holy, only holy, or only loving. You know, some more progressive traditions say, "Well, God is just only loving. He doesn't. He doesn't care about sin. He wants you to be happy." Where you have very holy gods, like say so the God of Islam would be a, a holy God, but not maybe, maybe not a personally loving God. But Keller points out that actually the God of the Bible is holier than the only holy God and more loving than the only loving God. You say, well, wait, what? Well, the God of the Bible. This is Keller's illustration. The God of the Bible is holier than the only holy God, because the only holy God can just wink at sin. He can ignore it. That's not actually holy. (laughs) The God of the Bible is so holy that he had to satisfy his own justice. He couldn't just ignore our sin. But then the God of the Bible is more loving than the only loving God, because it cost him something. It cost him infinitely to love you. You know, the loving only God doesn't really care if you sin. So what does it cost him to love you? Nothing but to love sinners, to love broken people who've offended you, who deserve your wrath, and to love them anyway, that's more loving than the God who just loves for, you know, just because. So anyway, I think it's a good, just example of how good theology just explains what we can know about apologetics. It explains the meaning of things like the resurrection more than just presenting the facts. That's actually
1: a very good point. It's one of the things I'm, not with every apologist certainly but with i would say the apologetics community in general is a concern that we're just interested in arguments for the existence of god or so on and so forth and like you're drawing out actually it should be our understanding of the bible and our understanding of good theology informing our apologetics so that what you're saying is no small thing um because i've i've seen it i've observed it um where it's the opposite it's more like let's have a philosophical argument and a philosophical discussion. It's like, well, where's the Bible in that? Um, mm-hmm. You know, cause the Bible is its own. It's, it's, it, it's a, it's a revealed word and it all centers around Christ, we would say. And it does have good answers. And so our mm-hmm. theology should be driven from that and from an Orthodox, or from our Orthodox theology. And that should in fuel or inform whichever one you prefer Uh, our understanding and engagement in apologetics. So I I, I think what you just said is really, really important. Any thoughts on that?
2: The first books on apologetics I ever read um, was John Frame's Apologetics to the Glory of God. And it's been a long time. I think it was probably 2007. (laughs) It's been like 15 years since I read it. But I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, he emphasizes that apologetics itself is an act of worship. It's, it's something we do to honor God. You know, we're loving God with our minds and we're loving other people as we're called to do as Christians by doing apologetics, by explaining why Christianity is true. And so we all should always do all of this, not as this bare intellectual exercise, but we have to, from the outset, think about it as something we do in order to love God. It's a way, an expression of our love for God. And that should change the way we approach it. We shouldn't do things just to convince people intellectually to try to rhetorically maneuver it. No, we should be doing this out of love for God and love for the people that we're called to, to, to the gospel with. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and then, because of that also it'll, it'll naturally draw on our theology. It will not just be, well, here, here's, here's an argument sort of totally divested from our understanding of who God is, what reality is like, no, 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 we have to, Maybe not explicitly, but we have to always frame our endeavor, our politics endeavor, around what we know is true from the Bible. Mm,
1: really good, brother. What danger does cultural relativism present to a biblical worldview, and how should Christians respond to it today?
2: Yeah, so cultural relativism, depending I mean how you define it, but normally it's defined that morality is relative to a particular culture. So, you know, you can't say what's universally absolutely good or evil, but that good and evil in one culture might be different than good and evil in some other culture. So that's that's cultural relativism. Now, that kind of relativism, I would say, seems to be dying out rapidly in the face of social justice movements, or especially in the U.S. and college campuses. You know, you will not find people today, at least young people, saying, oh, in the U.S. it's good for women to vote and for sex slavery to be illegal. But in other cultures, it's fine. It's great for women to be subjugated to men and to not be able to read. And, and for, other cultures have their own morality. You I barely I don't think I've seen someone saying that for a decade right? uh, or is it seemed to be more popular maybe me 20 years ago. But today, I think what you have instead is religious relativism. And that says, look, all religions are equally good. It's, you know, Islam, Judaism, Christianism, Hinduism, they're all equally good as long as they align with progressive understandings of race, class, gender, sexuality, gender identity, homophobia, transphobia, white supremacy, ableism, and so forth. So you actually have this objective moral core that is universal. It's not relative to anything. It stands outside of all cultures and critiques them. And says, "Well, you're regressive. You know, you want to take us back a century. And you, on the other hand, you are uh, you're you on the side of history. So it, it's so what's relative now is the religious aspects. So all religion doesn't matter if you're Muslim or you're Christian, as long as you all can get behind this particular moral vision tied up in, in, in notions of intersectionality and, and social justice. And so." What's interesting is, again, that it it's a unique challenge because, one, on the one hand, many of those stances, not all of them, but many of them would actually be opposing what has been traditionally understood as a Christian, say, sexual ethics um, or ideas about gender. But then, on the other hand, uh, they still want to retain the idea that, well, it doesn't really matter if you believe in Jesus or in Muhammad or in the Buddha. It doesn't that doesn't matter um so i think it's, it's a twofold challenge now to say well wait a minute actually um we can't support all of these progressive ideas about say sexuality and and also we can't support the idea that it doesn't really matter whether you follow jesus or muhammad or, or moses that actually it does kind of matter what you believe religiously in fact it matters a great deal um because these religions teach different things one of the um one of the illustrations I use in the book, I, I've christened the, the parable of the, the blind men and the house of objects. So people probably have heard the parable of the blind men and the elephant. It is, you know, five blind men are wandering through a jungle and they all come across an elephant. They all grab different parts of the elephant. So one blind man grabs the side of the elephant. And he says the elephant's you know smooth and flat like a wall. And the other blind man says, no, 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 you're wrong. He's holding the, 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 trunk, the, the trunk of the elephant. Says, the, the elephant's long and flexible like a hose. And the third blind man has the elephant's tusks. And he says, no, you're both wrong. The elephant's sharp like a sword. And the five blind men are arguing. But a fifth man comes along and says, no, actually, you're all right. You're just not exclusively right because you're all having, grabbing different parts of the elephant. So you're all right, but you only have part of the truth. The, the big truth, the whole truth is too big for any one man to grasp. That's supposed to be an analogy for how we approach religion. Every religion gets some things right, but that but God's just too big to be put in a box and that God can't be contained within the traditions of one religion. Well, I say, okay, let me give you a different parable. There are five blind men wandering around a museum, and one blind man stumbles across a hose and a garden hose, and one blind man stumbles across a sword. And one blind man stumbles across a wall and they're all describing what they're touching. But a wise man comes and tells them, no, you're all holding an elephant. Now, which version of the parable is actually true? So well, what do you mean? I said, well, which one is true? How do you know that we're not living in the second version of the first version? And there are, so there are a lot of issues. There. What you're saying, basically, is you're saying I am like the wise man who can tell you five benighted blind men what you're really doing in religion. That's actually quite arrogant. But number two, how do you know that? How do you come to a position of spiritual advancement where you can relativize all these other religious claims? So, uh, yeah, that's I think that's more the problems we're facing today, not pure relativism, saying everything's, you know, different cultures differ. We're actually facing a twofold danger of one, an actual overarching narrative about morality that we can't wholly accept, and then two the idea that, well, you know religions are all basically teaching the same things as long as you're on page with progressive versions of morality. I think that's
1: really really well said. and I think the other thing to touch on probably that you might want to maybe speak to is, well, everything is just you know private, so it's if that's just your private take. so just keep it in your home keep it keep it to yourself and I see that in my among my neighbors too it, who are mostly older which is interesting as well that um you know baby boomer generation are even older than that but it, it's it's so true because we're we're just you know oh well do you you ask do you go to do you go to church oh, oh yeah or, or am i are you a christian oh yeah uh, then do you go to church oh yeah and then then they get offended uh and tell other people that you mm-hmm. asked a very innocent question and you didn't follow up with anything. And right. I'm just like, wait a minute. I didn't even ask you. I didn't even start asking you either any, any other questions. Like all I did was ask you an instant question because we were having a conversation and I was curious and, um, so, I yeah, think that perfect. is also
2: dying out, that, that idea of privatizing your beliefs, because beliefs definitely are not private anymore. You know, that what you believe about, say, gender and sexuality have to be on your yard signs, right? And your bumper stickers. And, and you have to be wearing a certain lapel pin and have a certain Twitter logo. And it goes on and on. So people are, are much less likely to say, well, keep it private because and in some sense, that's good. They're recognizing that our our private beliefs ought to impact how we live publicly, I I agree totally. You can't turn around now. And people generally to be, to be fair, don't turn around and say, well, you can't be public about what you believe, because frankly, they're committed to being public about what they believe. So again, that it's, it's, it's sort of plus and minus on the one hand, it's good that they're willing to acknowledge that our private beliefs should influence how we see the world, how we vote, how we interact with other people, but then uh, they're probably just going to say that our beliefs are wrong. (laughs) So, you know, Okay, yeah. I'm willing. I can. I, I actually prefer that. I prefer to say, yeah. Exactly. You know, we actually disagree about human nature and the purpose of life and whether God exists. We we disagree on those things. We can talk about them and be be kind and compassionate and love one another uh, and disagree openly rather than pretending we're all in agreement when we're not really.
1: Yeah, that's that's really good. Really good. How can we help our young people in our local churches and others who struggle with the problem of evil who may think that there's no good answers to, to the problem of evil?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So this is actually not something I wrote in my book. I was just thinking about this question before the interview. And when, it, when it, young Christians, I'm talking about like 14, 15-year-old Christians who, who probably, probably haven't experienced much evil personally. They're asking this question sort of philosophically. How can, how can you believe in God when there's so much evil in the world? One of the things we might want to recommend is simply talking to older Christians who have actually experienced personal evil. Because for them it's not academics. There is, you know, these you can let me put it plainly, but I remember I remember sitting in uh, it was actually in a Yale common room with some undergraduates. I was a postdoc at the time, but we we had there's a I think we went to see a debate about uh, God's existence or a talk, something about it was but a bunch of atheists and Christians got together and and viewed some kind of talk on. Religious stuff. We went back to a common room. We're talking afterwards about religion and stuff. And one of the guys in the room was kind of casually lying in the common room at Yale in a dorm. And, you know, I forget it was drinking coffee or, but, you know, he's sitting just really relaxed while sitting around with a grand piano next to us and these comfortable couches. He goes, Yeah, I just don't think that good and evil even exist. And, you know, just it's all a human construct and it doesn't really matter anyway. Just because, and I just remember saying to him, and this is, I, I wouldn't normally come across this bluntly, but I said, you know what? If there were actually like a war or a genocide happening, like you you would not believe that. That's very easy to say things like that from the comfort of a Yale common room. <laughs> but when 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 things start getting real, you're not going to take refuge in this sort of comfortable nihilism. You're going to realize, oh my goodness, good and evil really really matter, and eternity matters, and I can't pretend anymore. And um, I mean, think actually kind of gave him pause to think about that that, that his kind of Nonchalant nihilism only works in certain situations. So in the same way, I think if younger Christians are approaching this problem as a purely speculative sort of puzzle that they can't. Well, maybe they should talk to, say, Christians who have lost a child or you know, Christians who have, uh, have chronic pain or medical issues or talk to Christians from a global church who are literally being persecuted and, you know, thrown in jail for their beliefs, and then come back and tell me why the problem is so hard when you see the vibrant faith of these Christians who, who actually realized the truth, which is that uh, if God does not exist, then all of that suffering, which is still happening, and no one denies it's happening, but is meaningless. Well, wait a minute. So your choices really aren't you know between you know theism okay your choices intellectually are between theism and atheism but your choices are also therefore between meaning and meaninglessness well that puts things in a different perspective and i'm not saying an answer to the problem of evil i'm not saying that intellectually i'm just saying existentially in terms of what will sustain you through those periods of suffering that you are going to experience unless you're incredibly lucky well then it turns out that christianity has resources to to make you a a, a good, a better person to stabilize you, to give you hope that frankly, atheism will never have. Mm-hmm. So again, that doesn't, I'm not saying that answers the intellectual problem, but it definitely gives you a perspective on your life that's important. No, that is
1: really good because it's biblical truth informing our experience and not to mention what you mentioned when it comes straight, pretty much straight out of Tyson Older mm-hmm. men instructing younger <laughs> men and older women instructing uh, younger women and so go talk to them and that that is so helpful like if you're a younger christian find that talk to your pastor uh talk if you're a lady find an older lady in the church and talk through that those kind of things learn from their you know lived i would say lived theology that where they've taken in the bible and they've actually lived it out they've worked it out and we have we have so much to learn and, and from that and like you're saying, I mean, just, just that, that can provide such a wonderful answer to this. I mean, there are arguments and we're not saying, like you said, there are argue good arguments out there, but that is such a powerful thing. It's, it's, um, you know, like I can talk about my, I can talk about my wife's parents dying tragically from hmm. cancer and her father was shot. Um, I can talk about my parents memory issues. My mom has Alzheimer's and my my dad has uh dementia. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, we we all have those things in our life that are really hard. Um, you know, and and we can you God can use those those things, those, those lessons where we have, you know, learned and grown in, in our understanding of the word.
2: And then we've lived it out, had to live it out. Um, the Lord can use that and he does. So, mm-hmm. the, and the other thing that um, is worth mentioning is there are, so I, in my book, I do go into the intellectual answers, which are out there. And I give some common choices and we're free, we have free agency. And so, you know, we, we bring evil into the world through our choices. God didn't make us do those things. We, we freely chose to do those things. You talk about soul building. Well, God allows evil in order to build character in us, which is a very biblical idea. Actually, it's like I said, it's in Titus, it's in Hebrews. It's not actually all of the New Testament letters. I'd probably argue. Mm-hmm. Um, th- then there's the idea that events are interconnected. So evil and good often, uh, good comes out of evil. And so if you want to get rid of the evil, you go to the good as well. And I mean, a good example biblically is the story of Joseph. How Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and yet he himself, commenting on these events, said. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. And so if you wanted to get rid of the evil, you could have done that. But then unbeknownst to you, a human, you would have then, you know, prevented Joseph from saving millions of lives. So, again, that just has to do with the fact that we're not omniscient. We don't know what plans God has, even for the evil in the world. But they're all, those, are, those are all generic answers that any theist could give. But then I go beyond that to, again, bring in theology. What does the Bible say beyond those things about the origin or, the, or the, 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 why, does it, why does evil exist, the existence of evil? And so I bring out just three things briefly. Eternity. Eternity matters. And if, if human beings are going to live for 70 or 80 years, then evil is a big part of that story, a huge part. But if human beings are going to live for eternity, then then evil becomes a human evil. a Human evil in this world become the tiny fraction of what's actually relevant to a human beings' life. So in that perspective, a lot changes. And Paul tells us that you know the our present sufferings will actually prepare for us a crown of glory, and we will set. And if you think about this, this is really hard for us again because we're living in that seventy or eighty years of human life. We hear, like, no, nothing would make up for this. But I think, and again, Keller talks about this how the evil we experience in this life will be, even that will be glorified, and we will find, it. Uh, somehow joy in that experience not in the evil but in what god did through the evil and so the example that i always give uh or in my book i actually mentioned it but i had a brain tumor about 12 years ago an emergency emergency surgery they discovered this brain tumor is about size of a racquetball and i had to have emergency surgery to remove it and my parents flew in it was like within a couple days i went from feeling fine to you could die and i had a one-year-old son I had, my daughter was in, in utero, and so I was saying goodbye to my family. And then the surgery was a success, and I, you know, incredibly no deficits, and I completely cured. I mean, I still have a brain tumor parts in, in there. But the point is, when I was recovering in the hospital room, It was the sweetest time of fellowship with God I've ever had, both before, actually before the surgery and then even after, but both times I sensed God's presence. And then afterwards to see the, I was like, I was going to live and the prognosis was so good. I was so full of joy. I mean, seeing my wife, my kids, which is incredible. It was like, it was like a slice of heaven. Well, that's what all of our suffering will look like on the other side of eternity, because we're going to look back and say, God brought me through all of that. He was faithful the whole time. And that will be a source of joy in eternity. So that's why, again, that's why eternity matters. Another example that I give in the book is is Jesus' solidarity with us. You know, we serve a God who, through his son, absorbed our suffering, right? He carried our sorrows to the cross. So again, that's a source of praise for eternity. We will be reflecting on how much God's love for us. And we would not have known that love if we had not known the suffering that God brought us through. And we would not, we had not seen him suffering for our sins. And then finally, and even just logically, well, evil, evil itself furthers God's glory in creation, both because it shows his justice in punishing evil and his mercy in forgiving it. So again, all those considerations give you a Christian response to why does evil exist? It ultimately exists to display God's glory, both his holiness and his compassion. Um, But again, I think that's why if you had these, I feel like these resources are underused. (laughs) Too, Too many apologetics books, not all of them, but many of them try to approach apologetics from sort of a, Almost like a religiously neutral perspective, which is which is very bizarre, actually, when you think about it. Um, and I'm I'm more interested in saying no. What what are the biblical answers that are out there that are, that are often much more satisfying than these generic theistic answers?
1: Mm. That's really good. Really good. I, I just want to I want to touch on what you said, but also just practically, like say we're talking to somebody and you know like you're in crew or somebody comes up to the table and we're having a, or you know coffee and we're reading our bible or a theology book and i i would just say if somebody's coming up to you and asking those kind of questions um ask them questions what why are you why are you asking this question you know what 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 leads you to ask this question and and most of the time where they're probably going to go in my experience will be They're going to tell you about all the hurt that they've had. Mm -hmm. And they so they're wondering, or they were hurt by the church or, you know, any number of combination of those two things, just be ready to sit there and listen. And, you know, (sighs) it's not that you don't give answers, but just sitting and listening is sometimes the most powerful thing, just sitting like, you know, and listening. And then, following up with them maybe the next time re- re- realize we we are so I think prone um and I'm not saying again I don't want to be heard saying that we don't ever give an answer mm-hmm. for the reason for the hope that we have but I'm saying there is a place for just sitting there and listening mm-hmm. and I think that I think that we as Christians we want to when that person that opportunity presents itself we don't see it as a totality of a person's life, we just see the opportunity and we can get very excited by it and we can, you know, get in, get into it. But there's a place for seeing conversations over a person's lifetime Mm -hmm. and uh, just realizing, Hey, this is one conversation that they're going to have. Maybe I'm the person who sits there and listens. And then you know, maybe we can, if they're interested, say, Hey, would you like to meet and talk and then have another conversation and, and so on and so forth, rather than, Hey, let's, let's give this person the fire hose, you know, here, let me give it to you, you know, and, and, and there's, there's a maturity there. There, there's a, there's a actual caring for the other person there too. And um, so, but, but some situations, you know, you do have to say something and, you know, so I'm not saying that I'm just saying, we should approach those situations with a lot of care and um, discernment and obviously wisdom and praying for that. But mm-hmm. anything you want to add to that or.
2: No, I think it's right. I think uh, don't, don't be like Job's friends, right? Were they, I mean, they at the meeting, they were good. They were just sitting there listening and, and mourning with Job, but then when they began giving him their arguments, like they were, you know, not very fruitful counselors. So there's a, uh, or the other example I think of in, in the gospel of John with Mary and Martha, who both approach Jesus and say, but Jesus gives them totally different answers, right? He, he To Martha, he gives good theology. And then to Mary, he just weeps with her. And so um, the, the point is, is not to know he didn't have to ask questions because he's Jesus. But I think for us, we don't always know what they're going through. So we shouldn't, especially on this problem of evil thing, find out why they're asking first. Are they just approaching this as purely intellectual exercise or are they suffering and looking for answers? Because I think the latter, you point them to Christ first. You say, ah, you know, I can tell you about a savior who knows who's a man of sorrows himself, who knows what it's like to suffer. And, and, but, but more than that, who can meet your deepest need, which is not alleviation of suffering, but forgiveness of sin. Um, I think that's, see, that's what you point them to uh, rather than just giving them some kind of intellectual answer.
1: Mm. That's really good. Well, you make a really good point on page 173. Not that the other points aren't good, but this mm. is really, really good. The fact that someone is a Christian does not prove that he or she has and uh, reason and is clinging to wishful thinking, prejudice, and dogmatism. You know, that, that statement is really interesting to me, given the context of it, of the chapter discussing the gospel, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. How should we present our arguments in a faithful to the biblical text way and responsibly point people to Christ from biblical texts?
2: Right. So after I give that statement in chapter seven, and so I've just spent six chapters giving all the evidence that Christianity is true. The gospel is reliable. Jesus rose from the dead. uh, The Christian God exists. So, you know, that. I'm I'm mainly talking about um, talking to atheists there, where I'm saying you know you can't just say there's no evidence at all. This is all wishful thinking. Well, no, I just gave you all this evidence for Christianity. I'm not primarily addressing people that believe in other religions, although it's relevant to them because they've all they also have to wrestle with the question of who is Jesus, did he rise from the dead, and so forth. Um, but and I, so I think uh, you can those. Arguments do speak to all people, not just to atheists, but in terms of people who just tend to scoff at the very idea of religion, you can say, no, 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 there is really evidence that, that Christianity is true. And I can't speak to other religions because I'm not a, I'm an apologist for Islam or Hinduism. Um, but I would say that this does raise an interesting point because. And again, this is what I think is more applicable to other arguments that aim at bare theism, like does God exist? Well, okay, but a Muslim can say, yeah, I believe God exists. The Kalam cosmological argument, for example, is is named after, I think, an Arabic word uh, because it's Muslim apologists who resurrected this argument. Um, So the point is that a lot of these arguments for a creator, for example, would be employed by other religions. And so what makes Christianity distinct? Well, you can walk them through things like the resurrection, which I do. But if you look at the Bible, it's interesting. When the apostles make their case that Christianity is true, they don't tend to sound like a contemporary apologist. They do make arguments. You Look at Paul in Acts 17. They make arguments about creation in Romans 1. It's evident from creation that God exists, that his divine qualities and power are are there and what you can see. They do make those kinds of arguments. But what do they spend most of their time talking about? And how do they persuade people who are already religious, like Jews, that Christianity is true? And one of the things they talk about a lot, obviously, is sin and salvation. So that's why the final section of my book, the final three chapters, the penultimate three chapters, uh, are about what I call the argument from the gospel. And this is the idea that the Christian gospel itself, the message of Jesus, life, death and resurrection, is evidence that Christianity is true. And uh, uh, so that strikes people, I hope, as surprising because Christians tend to see apologetics is what you do b- prior to sharing the gospel. Once you've done apologetics and then you tell people about Jesus. But I'm arguing no. Telling people about the gospel is itself an apologetic for Christianity's objective truth. And so let me briefly explain the argument here. because I think it really is new. So The idea is that I'm working from is the idea that, you know. The sort of four premises. Number one, if some religion or philosophy or ideology makes uniquely true claims about the human condition, these deep claims about about human reality, our existence, our problems, then the if they're uniquely true among all religions or all philosophies, then the best explanation is that that religion or philosophy or ideology is uniquely true. If they get something uniquely right, it's a really deep truth about reality. Then probably the reason they get it right is that they're they have unique insight. They need unique religious truth. Then premise two is, well, Christianity makes two unique claims about the human condition. It claims that we're radically sinful, and it claims we need rescue. And then premise three is, well, we are radically sinful. Premise four, we do need rescue, and therefore the conclusion would be, and the best explanation is that Christianity is uniquely true. And the illustration I give is, imagine I'm playing pickup basketball, and uh, which I used to do before I have... Uh, injured my hip and getting old, but, uh, but I used to pick up basketball, but imagine I'm playing one day and I suddenly collapse in a heap. I'm lying on the gr- ground and a crowd gathers around and they're all giving me advice. One of them says, oh, yeah, you just tripped. You're fine. Get up. I'll help you get up. You can walk it off in five minutes. You'll be, you'll be fine. Another guy says, no, 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 You know, uh, I'm going to get you some an ACE bandage for my car. I'll wrap your ankle up because you could have sprained it. It's worth putting a bandage on it. Another guy says, no, 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 let me run across the street to get you an ice pack. And they, they're they all having a friendly discussion about how they can, you know, get, like, I can I can get better. And then while they're all there, a woman rushes up to me and she says, don't move. I'm a doctor. I saw exactly what happened. This man's life is in danger. We need to get him to a hospital. Immediately call an ambulance. And they all look at her like, look, lady, this is a basketball game. He just tripped. You know, don't, don't freak him out. You're overreacting. She looks at me and she says, I'll tell you two things. You can't feel your legs and you can't move. And mm-hmm. the people are like, come on, lady. Are you really a doctor? We don't believe you're skeptical. They're harassing her. But I, but I look at her and I say, call an ambulance. Get me to a hospital right now. So now in that moment, why do I believe this random person ran out of nowhere? Why do I believe her? Am I justified in believing her? Yes, why? Because I know two things that the crowd does not know. I know that I can't feel my legs and I can't move, and she of all the people in the crowd was the only person who somehow knew those truths she was her her explanation was uniquely perceptive, and therefore I am justified. In trusting her because she probably has, she does clearly have some unique insight into my condition that no one else had. Well, that's the illustration. If Christianity can correctly identify your spiritual condition that you are a radical sinner who needs rescue, and no other religion does that, nor their philosophy does that, then probably it's because Christianity is a revealed religion and it comes from the God who created you and who knows your real problem. And okay, so. What does that mean? Well, that means then the reason when the apostles, when the Bible is preaching the gospel, that you are a radical sinner who can't just get better. You can't just do better and obey God's law harder and then you'll be fine. You need someone outside of yourself. You need a savior to come and live in your place and die in your place. And and, and that's the only way to be reconciled to God. Well, Christianity is unique in that. Then when the apostles, when the Bible is teaching about sin and salvation and, and preaching the gospel, they are giving you a rational reason to recognize that Christianity is true. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how ultimately most people come to realize that Christianity is true. They don't study apologetics. They don't, they don't go and learn the Kalam cosmological argument. They don't learn about uh, fine-tuning. They don't necessarily know about the reliability of the gospels even. But they know that they're a sinner who needs rescue, and they know that no other religion is offering what Christianity offers. Mm. And so that's how they are justified in believing that Christianity is true. Mm. It's
1: really good. Really good. There's a a lot that can be said about that. I mean, (laughs) you see that. You see that. I mean, you think about I'm just thinking here. You mean you think about why Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians to correct their behavior to give them an essentially an apologetic for the gospel. And you see that in, you know, first Corinthians 15, uh, Colossians, same thing. I mean, first John, I mean, so we do need, we do need apologetics as Christians. We, Mm -hmm. it helps, it helps to us to clarify, uh, you know, to know what we believe, why we believe it and why it matters. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I think you're right, brother. In what way do the doctrines of sin and our need for rescue have explanatory power, as you say, on page 234? And what uh, what do these two doctrines mean for our lives and our ministries?
2: Right. So I go on to, because people will say, well, I don't really think Christianity is true about me being a radical sinner. I don't really see that. And I say, well, okay, think about it. Step back a little bit from human history. Look at the history of war and genocide and throughout all human history. We have been killing each other and doing horrible things for each other. Think about the failures of political systems to fix things. I mean, people have been promising utopias. If only you vote for me or follow these policies or have this kind of structure of government, everything will be perfect. How is that gone for us? Right. I mean, communist regimes that were meant to ennoble the poor and to lift people out of have killed millions, tens of millions. Uh, even liberal democracies, right? Are we living in an era of prosperity? Certainly, right? We're well off, but spiritually, how are we doing? Right? Are we all happy? I mean, people are actually, if you like, take surveys, quality of, of actual happiness does not seem to correlate strongly with our prosperity financially. And so uh, I just and personally, look at your own life. Do you have it all together? Are you wonderful and happy all the time? Are you full of joy and peace? And, well, probably not. There are parts of your life that are, that are horrifying, frankly. And so it, Christianity explains that. It explains why we see the, the history littered with bodies, why we see the failure of politics or even religion in, in terms of like rules and moral law to fix us. We can't fix, we can't fix our hearts with the law that's paul's big point in romans the law can't bring life and so and that has this power to explain both human history and our own personal history yeah and then um i think so that, that's why i would even lead with this message because it, it it's not something we have to lead up to we don't have to uh, you know plow the ground and soften the ground by giving them all these intellectual reasons. It's fine. I don't mind that. I'm just saying, don't be ashamed to simply tell people that Christianity identifies your problem. It's sin. It's your alienation from God. And it identifies the solution, which is that the son of God came to rescue bad people like us. You can just do that's all you have to do. Don't be, don't feel like you have to get a master's degree or a PhD in order to preach the simple gospel of salvation.
1: Amen, brother. Amen. Why is it so important, as you say on page 243, that we critically examine our biblical worldview?
2: Yeah, I mean, the Bible's consistent, right? And we believe uh, as Christians, the Bible is God's word, it's God's revelation, and that God is consistent. God doesn't contradict himself. And so, if that's true, then there is a right way to think about the world and reality that comports with the Bible, and there's a wrong way to think about the world and reality. And all of us get things wrong. All of us are inconsistent and and sin clouds and corrupts our reasoning. And so because of that, you know, doubting ourselves is actually healthy to say, wait a minute, am I sure I got this right? That's actually good because the answer is yes. You got something. The answer is no, you didn't get everything right. The answer is you always got something. Oh, I guess someone out there has perfect theology. Somebody, Jesus did, maybe some other theologian. (laughs) I don't know who it was, but, but, But most of us have things that are inconsistent and and wrong. And so it's good to re-examine our theology and to doubt our theology where where it's wrong. However, is doubting God healthy? Uh, This is what I worry about. People kind of like, well, doubt's like cool. Doubt's like hip. Doubt's like good. It's healthy for you. It's good to doubt. Well, you know, I don't know. I I don't know if it's always good to doubt because, because, well, here's some examples. I thought of. Um, is it always good to doubt in the context of a personal relationship? Think about this. Well, I used to be certain that my wife loves me, but now I'm full of doubt. I'm beginning to wonder if she's actually a Russian spy sent to kill me. Maybe I need to divorce my wife and run off with my secretary. Now, is that healthy doubt? No, that is unhealthy doubt because you're not doubting yourself. You are doubting your wife. <laughs> you're doubting and. Okay, frankly, I'd be a little bit worried about your motivations. Really, you think she's a Russian spy and you just happen to think you should run off with your secretary? I kind of wonder if the secretary thing came first and then that came later. Another example of this, you know, I know my apartment building is on fire and that the fireman is there at the window screaming at me to come to the window so he can rescue me. But can I really be sure? I don't want to be a naive fundamentalist here. I read the New York Times. I'm very smart and sophisticated. Maybe I should be a little skeptical about the fireman. Again, what kind of game are you playing? This is life and death. This is not a matter of like, you know, a, a speculation and kind of, you know, fireside me. No, this is like life or death. So in that sense, we, we really have to, we have, I think we should have a healthy doubt towards doubt. We need to be brutally honest about our motivations. Like, am I doubting sincerely or am I doubting? Cause I really don't want to be, christian anymore i really would rather live my life for me and oh conveniently hear some doubts so be skeptical of your motivations um recognize the stakes we're talking about eternity right heaven and hell this is very serious D- don't treat it like oh it's kind of a, a fun sunday conversation no this is important and then also real and he is then doubt of him is not like doubting your interpretation or doubting whether you are so it's doubting him so the right posture is important we should have a posture of trust we trust in christ that's sort of theological bedrock and then doubt whether we've understood him properly and if and we, and where we go to find out we go to the bible this is god's word to us and so then we ask well have i understood this properly and so again that's i, I, I we should be just careful i don't want doubt to become trendy <laughs> it's It shouldn't be, I mean, did Jesus doubt? Do you think Jesus was like, well, I don't even know much about God. Maybe I could be wrong. Jesus was actually confident. It's not something something to be ashamed of. He was not intellectually unsophisticated or dumb because he was confident. And in fact, again, the apostles too, they were confident. And that was a good thing. And so I I don't think we should aspire to doubt. I think we should aspire to believe what's true confidently. That should always be the goal.
1: Yeah, yeah yeah
2: one one one
1: aspect of doubt just just wrestles with the text and what it means and the other aspect of doubt just questions and to ridicule and yeah. to bring into uh disrepute the the text
2: i think the bible, the bible uses the word like scoffer right it's not it's not just they're not sure i, I really don't know it's not, it's, not, it's different it's someone who scoffs who mocks who ridicules does not really want to know the answer. <laughs> they, they want to know a different answer. And so that's why they begin doubting. So, yeah, so I think questions are always welcome. You know, Jesus has got asked questions all the time. He, did, he often didn't answer them directly, but you, you could ask people questions, ask your pastor questions. You can ask me questions. Um, but remember that behind the questions, there's not always, but sometimes a volitional obstacle that you don't want to do something you want to be your own God I'm not it's called sin I have that too That's, this is <laughs> too. Problem. Yeah, <laughs> as human beings right and and uh, so I think we have to be honest about that even in our questioning mm. and uh and then also for apologists I think it's fine to say I don't know oh, We have yeah. to be comfortable saying when I ask you a question it's okay to say I don't know you don't have to you know someone says Neil I have a question about some recent developments in the seriology that impacts how I read Isaiah you know, I do not say, oh, let me bloviate for a bit. Let me just sort of spin out some narrative. I don't, I'm a, or let me say, oh, let me give me five minutes on Google and I'll answer your question about a seriology. You know, I just type in what is a seriology into Google. You know, I just say I don't know what you're talking about. Um, uh, maybe you should ask someone else who say is an expert in a seriology, or if they really want me personally to give an answer, I say, well, we'll recommend a book for me to read, and maybe I'll have enough background to answer a question, or maybe a couple books to read. But it's OK to say, I don't know. And what's more, I think a good grounding in apologetics gives you the confidence to say, I don't know. I think oftentimes we say we want to appear confident because in our hearts, we're not confident. We have to put on this show of bravado in order to cover up the fact that, oh, maybe I don't know everything. And I think if we say, no, I actually have really good reasons to believe that Christianity is true, then mm-hmm. I can be confident in saying, well, there's certain things I don't know. and I'm OK with that because well, I'm, I'm, I'm confident in the main things. And in general, uh, I see with my with my kids too, um, as an apologist, giving a wrong answer is a hundred times worse than giving no answer <laughs> because you lose a lot of credibility. If I go off and spat off about something I don't know, and it turned out to be wrong, well, people are going to look at me and say, he's not really reliable. So it's always important to say, to confess your ignorance, to say, I don't know if you don't know. And that will oftentimes give you credibility in people's eyes because they'll say, oh, he's not just giving us his opinion. He's really studying these issues.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, the other thing, I mean, behind that is our, that it, that reveals we don't talk enough about, and I, and I agree with everything that you're saying, just to be clear, it shows real maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it shows, Hey, you know, what? I don't have, like you said, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know uh, all the answers to all your questions, but you know, Hey, here's a person that is trustworthy that knows what they're talking about. And, this field or that field or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they have them, you can, you can trust them that they're going to lead you to, to the answer that will hopefully answer your question. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think what you just said is really, really important. We need to say it. We need to say that a lot more. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have, I have, I have two, three, two degrees in theology. It's tempting to just say, Oh, I can, I can, I know this answer. I can just mm-hmm. think about it and pop it up. But you know, some, it would, the, the master of divinity is a generic degree <laughs> as I often tell people. And even with like the PhD, you have a sliver of information. So you don't yeah. have to, if you're, if a lot of guys listen to this have a master of divinity or or PhD, you don't have to, you don't have to say, I know the answer. You can just say, I don't know, but mm-hmm. you know, here's a good book. And this book has the answer and you know, it's a trustworthy resource and a reliable guide that will help you with the truth. So, I mean, what you're saying. I mean, I, I love it. So, you know what, brother, uh, where can people go to find out
2: more about you on your website or on social media? Yeah. Uh, You'd find me at Neil Shenvi, N E I L S H E N V I on Twitter. I'm way too active on Twitter, but uh, you can find me there and you can keep abreast of my writing, uh, whatever I happened to be doing at the time. And I have a Facebook Apologics page, Neil Shenvey Apologics. I'm less active there. My website, if you Google Neil Shenvey, I'm the only Neil Shenvey you'll find. I think it's a fairly uncommon name. You can, But Twitter and Facebook and my website are the best ways to get a hold of me. Awesome. line, curry go and follow you. So
1: do that i've enjoyed uh i don't follow you on twitter i should probably rectify that but um <laughs> uh i've enjoyed seeing your posts and i and i like the way that you engage with with people you you don't uh, take as I, I see you don't take offense to people you deal legitimately with our questions although sometimes i've noticed people uh you know they they do engage a little bit of ad hominem argumentation, but you know uh, you, you're always I would appreciate the fact that you're you're fair with people, so I think mm-hmm. other people will enjoy that too. So brother, as I always say, there's there's always so much that you can uh, say and talk about in a in a conversation like this, and so we've only really scratched the surface, maybe.
2: But uh, can you give us a few takeaways as we wrap up? Sure. I think the, the big thing that I would say, uh, or the takeaways from my book, is number one, there are good reasons to believe that Christianity is true. Uh, we don't have to feel like we're just we have blind faith with no reason at all. We have to jettison reason uh, in order to be Christian. That's not true. You know, it's true. And then, but the reason that any of us, anyone, rejects Christianity is not ultimately about not having good reasons. The Bible says it's always ultimately about sin, is that all of us have darkened hearts that, that turn away from God, that want to be our own gods. And so we should never be naive and very, I'd say, unbiblical and think if I just give people enough reasons, then they'll just become Christians. Well, no. Did that how you become a Christian? Do people give you really good reasons? And then you just said, well, yeah, that makes sense. Now I'll be a Christian. No, it had it took an act of God to turn your heart away from sin, to recognize your need for Him. So that's number two, is that we we really need, so I'm not saying don't do apologetics. I wrote a whole book about it. I'm just saying, don't forget that what makes people Christians, it's not us giving good reasons, it's God transforming hearts. And the gospel itself is the power of God into salvation. That's number three, is that we don't need to be an expert in apologetics or uh, have a PhD in, in physics or a PhD in New Testament, in order to tell people that we are sinners who need a rescuer. And that's enough to justify our trust in Christianity being true, that message of the gospel. So those are three things. Number one, it's true. Number two, our 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 rejection of it is not because of a lack of evidence. And then number three, the gospel itself is enough. It's efficient to, to bring salvation to people. And so that's so be confident. Go out there and tell people the good news about Jesus and don't worry too much about, overly about having great answers to all their questions.
1: Hmm. Well said, brother. Well said. Well, guys, we've been uh, talking today with Neil Chenby about his book, Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Neil, thank you so much for your time today and, and for all the great work that you're doing. We, we look forward to seeing how the Lord will continue to use you.